Hello, friends. How's it going? It's Matt. You listen to the Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast. It's the show where I try and cover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavors. Thanks for tuning into this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Now, before I get into the episode proper, just a quick heads up. My book, Looking Sideways Volume 1, is now available for pre-order through my website. Now, I'll chat more about this at the end in Housekeeping Corner. But it means if you want to support the project, you can do. Head on over to my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com, where you'll see a tab that says Book. From there, well, you know what to do. All right, on with the show. It's episode 152. And I've got Andrew Alexander-King on the show for this episode. Now, if you don't know Andrew, let me get you acquainted. Andrew is a surfer, climber, and a mountaineer who's at the beginning of a project that is, well, ambitious, doesn't even cover it, really. Basically, he's attempting to become the first African-American to climb the seven highest summits and the seven tallest volcanoes on every continent. Yep, just that. He's also begun a project called the Between Worlds Project, through which he's seeking to increase accessibility and diversity and subvert the, as he puts it, lottery ticket of birth that currently sets your cultural path and dictates your route into this world that I'm assuming everybody listening to this is passionate about. So I first met Andrew in the modern way through Instagram. We ended up chatting more and more about his project and his goals He is a legend. Let me just put that front and center. And uh, after chatting to him for a while, I was like, I'm going to get this guy on the podcast because I was so intrigued by his story and his take on the challenges we're currently facing and his evident warmth, which is something that comes through loud and clear in this episode, as you're going to hear. You know, this whole topic has been a real item of discussion for our industry over the last year or so. And Andrew's contribution, I think, is massively needed massively constructed and uh, really really well articulated in this conversation i'm going to be back at the end I'll, I'll leave it there he's a hugely entertaining and compelling speaker who uses his sorry who communicates even his life experiences and goals much more effectively than i'm going to be able to here so here's me and andrew alexander king i know who i am enjoy <laughs> Where are you at? Are you in a cabin? Like, where are you? <laughs> no, I'm in a shed. <laughs> yeah, Every, it's, shed. everyone's always like, are you, in a, are you in like a chalet or something? No, it's the shed. Um, yeah. yeah, like after the, when it became apparent that I was going to be working from home for like, you know, the foreseeable future, I was like, oh, I'm going to sort the shed out and make it like a little workspace. So uh, nice. yeah, it's cool. It's been a bit cold, to be honest, most of the winter because uh it's not it's obviously not insulated so um yeah i've got a little i've got a little heater in there but most of the winter i've been kind of battling like condensation and and now i'm like now that spring now now that spring's there i can kind of i've probably got like two months before then it gets it'll be too much like a greenhouse because obviously it's like glass so yeah um then then the summer it's too hot but uh you know, it's it's been it's been good. It's been good. Whereabouts are you? I'm at home in SoCal. So I'm in Southern California right now. And basically wake up, meditate. I have surfing training this morning and then I have deep sea or deep water training, like 
deep fitness training with like Navy SEALs and X-Rangers. Yeah, uh, is that is that the thing that you posted on your Instagram? Like the, yeah. like the basically looks like you're kind of marching across the bottom of a pool with dumbbells. Yeah, I was. Honestly, that was the easiest part of the workout. That was the easiest part of the workout. The other hard part is like, I'm so dense that I'm treading water and I'm like <laughs> sitting there and I'm like, guys, like I don't know if I can do this because like I'm so dense and I keep sinking so everyone on the team is amazing to work with like um you know the team is like full of like ex you know rangers and ex special forces people and then you got like Chuck that skied down Mavericks he's in that team too and then you got like Izzy Uh, like at you know Jaws so it's it's hard but it's by far the hardest work that I've ever done in in my regime right so So, like are are you pretty much constantly like work into a plan for for the goals that you've set yourself I and mean, we should talk we should talk about what those yeah. goals are in a minute but like um yeah because yeah. so, like it could just because obviously we've been chatting for for quite a while now and you know we follow yeah. each other and i've been sort of following what, what you do and yeah it looks like you're pretty methodical in in the way that you approach this is so like are you constantly yeah. like there's there's a plan it's goal-based to like and it kind of outcome-based that's sort of what it seems like yeah, it's definitely a framework. And I'm looking at my calendar right now in my room that like has every X leading up to Denali. And then like from there, like every training regime in it. So again, like I train anywhere from 14 hours a week to 21 hours a week. And it's basically there's, you know, four four times a week I have conditioning training in the gym with my trainer doing sled pushes, working on isotone metrics into my certain isolated body. And then I have three days a week, uh, which is, you know, climbing, uh, elevation training, which is 40 pounds in my pack, going from sea level to a thousand feet, get to the top, meditate. And then I have deep water training, which is with deep fitness now, and then free diving in the pool, run rock training and breath holds, and then recovery. And so everything I do is basically always leading up into one of those mountains, which is Again, when we deep into it, every region um, that's the one of the seven summits or one of the seven volcanoes has five training mountains that I go through and train on. So it's basically a village like Melissa Reed is my mentor. Um, she's the first woman to ever climb Everest without oxygen. She's mentoring me on, you know, mountaineering. And then I have like coaches for different aspects of what I'm doing. So, yeah, always thinking that. So, yeah. We should talk about the the, the plan. Like, so t- tell us tell us the plan. So it's it's uh, yeah. so it's fourteen summits, right? It's like seven volcanoes right. and the seven and the seven highest mountains on each continent. Is that what it is? Yep, yep, yeah. So it's seven of the highest. Yeah, seven of the highest mountains. So that's Everest, Elbrus, the highest mountain in the world, which is Everest, Elbrus, the highest mountain in Russia, which is you know Europe, and then you have Kilimanjaro, Denali. Aconcagua, Pujak, um, as well as Vincent, which is in Antarctica. And so on top of that, uh, not just going for the highest seven, going for the highest seven volcanoes, which are training me up for those seven. And then when each region as well, out of those seven regions, there's five other training volcano, uh, tri- five other training mountains that lead up to that. And I picked it because based off what we saw, I've been climbing. I taught myself how to climb and surf and swim over a decade ago. And I started, you know, just going around and helping people with the Between Worlds project that I um, developed years ago. And I was just climbing around the world. Um, and then when I saw what happened this year, or last year with George Floyd and the, the civil unrest with social inequality and such, I honestly was like, I'm going to do more than just be a hashtag. I'm going to stand on the top of a mountain and talk um, about these issues as I break through a glass ceiling. So, 
that, that, that was one of the questions I had actually, because obviously that's one of the things I find really fascinating about the whole project actually, because obviously like mountaineering, the history of it, I've spoken about this before mm -hmm. on here actually. It's, it's, it's very colonial, isn't it? It's very, it's very, yeah. the, the, the language of it is very, you know, it's very like kind of white people go to different culture and like bag <laughs> peaks, you know, like tick, yeah. tick off peaks. And it's, and, and like the, yeah. when you look, I mean, I've like quite sort of familiar with the history of mountaineering and it's definitely very linked to like that kind of colonial expansion of like different countries. And, and even now, like it, it can be, when something when a, when a milestone is reached that has a different purpose if you like i'm thinking actually of k2 like the winter ascent it's still really really rare you know that, that there's yeah. like any kind of there's, there's any kind of like purpose or foundation beyond that like i'm going to go there and i'm going to climb that because it's like a a, a ticking off exercise and I, and I know that's like a really there's probably like climbers and mountaineers really cringing at that like really reductive kind of take on it but you know what i'm getting at like the question i guess is from from what i've seen like the meaning of what you're trying to accomplish that you're you, that you're imbuing this quest with is is as important as the actual feat, mm -hmm. right so so i guess that that'd be the question right can could, could you explain like the roots of that yeah, so for me, like, I was born in Detroit. Again, I would say this, the Between Worlds project, the whole genesis of it is we're all born into this world as a lottery ticket, and our value is placed upon our social, economic, our race as we're pushed out into the world. But we're never asked those questions before we're born. We're never asked, like, where do you want to be born into, what color you want to be, what race, what gender you want to identify as. You're just really pushed out into the world with your lottery ticket as a life. Your values then place upon you based upon the society you grew up in, the community, your, your laws you see it as. And for me, it was my lottery ticket was you're going to be an African-American male born into a single parent household in Detroit, Michigan, in a society that doesn't really understand minority rights right now. And so for me, learning how to navigate that space between the under the glass ceiling of the between, like, again, where you're born into, and then breaking through that glass ceiling to be in a place of where you're able to navigate freely. Um, I saw that with my relatives that helped me be the first person in my entire family to go to college, go work for corporations from the Patriots, Lego to Live Nation, Ticketmaster. And for me, I was privileged to travel the world to see that at an early age. I got to live in Hawaii. I got to go to school in Europe. I got to learn multiple languages. And so as I started to climb and find peace um, within nature, I started to notice that every climb I did, I was like, I'm the only black guy here. You know, I remember being on Mount Fuji and I was like, I am the only, and I had to do a rescue on Mount Fuji. And I was like, you're the only black guy up here on Mount Fuji and you're doing a rescue right now because people don't really have the right proper gear for this. Um, and then when it goes to, when I really hit me with the Between Notes project is when I was doing the Trinity Summit, which is the highest mountains, or it's like a challenge, which is Mount Fuji, Kinabalu, then Mount Jade and Taiwan. And I get to Taiwan in this little tiny mining town and I'm drinking hot chocolate and this woman's like saying, hey, where are you from? And I say, I'm from America. And then she's like, oh, I love America. And I'm like, you should come to America. And like, when I say that, and I, this story lives in my heart because as soon as I say that, I sound so ignorant because I look around and like her lottery ticket shows that she would have to sacrifice so much more just to get to America. And then more and more than that, just to experience America like I do. And that's the point where I said, I'm not going to 
go to a country anymore, absorb the resources, take a selfie at the top of a mountain and be like, cool, I did something and go back to my desk and be like, that was a great vacation. Uh, at that point, I said, no matter what, I'll always look to a community and the culture to see what they need and be more than just there. So immerse myself into it. And that was six years ago. And I was doing that on my own funding. You know, I climbed Kilimanjaro on my own Walmart boots, pants, a double hoodie. If you look at the photo on Instagram and such, <laughs> like, again, I have like at the time, like a North Face jacket and two hoodies on. And like, I'm sitting at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro meditating. And um, the same with Aconcagua. And so to your point about colonialism, all of these achievements, I started to notice and I was like, especially after the summer where we saw like so much civil unrest, I was like, the safest place for someone of color is in nature. If you think about it, because mother nature is not going to kill you because she doesn't like your skin color. She's going to do what she does, which is cycle. She's going to like, this is the gift I'm giving you. Can you handle it? Yes or no. If you can't, you should leave. If you can come through with it. And I learned that like growing up in different parts of the world and finding happiness in Hawaii. And I, I really, it clicked in my head after losing you know, my great grandmother and other people close to me and my family to COVID that was like, I'm done being a hashtag. I'm done looking at the statistics that says I have a three time chance more likely to die in a routine traffic stop for being black than climbing Everest multiple times without oxygen. That doesn't make any sense. I've been pulled over and put my hands on the car in handcuffs more than I've been promoted and having dual degrees and having certifications. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense to me. And I was like, if I'm going to die in some place, I'd rather be on a mountaintop looking at happiness and freedom or in a wave that is pushing me forward than in a um, society that doesn't understand me. So that's where the Between Worlds Project come in. And for me now, it's it's basically standing up for those, you know, against sexism, racism, and socioeconomic barriers along the way. So a big part of it then is breaking the kind of, opportunity barriers that are, that are, that are in place yeah. for everybody like because you use the metaphor of a lottery ticket and, you, and you're obviously talking about mm -hmm. um people from you know you mentioned indonesia you, like as was that was that where you said you had that epiphany where you kind of realized like the, the taiwan yeah taiwan sorry my bad um yeah. but you know like obviously that's as you as you rightly say that being bound by the circumstances into which you're born is a universal human experience and you know like mm -hmm. so so, so the, a key theme is to is to break is to is to show like a way of breaking out of that and to to show that like you, you can you can change that with the right support and the right the right ambition right you know and i think it comes down to what we see now where honestly matt like you know, thanks to Phil. Phil, if you're hearing this, I love you. Thanks for getting us together and like connect us because like, honestly, a lot of brands prior to this didn't even know who I was, you know, and I was doing this for six years and like going around and like watching some of the best climbers climb some of these big mountains. And I remember just being in my expedition group and people were like, how have you climbed like over 50 mountains around the world? With, like not gear. And I was like, my mental stamina started back in Detroit. Like I'm not being chased down by the cops. I'm not having to dodge bullets in a drive-by shooting. I'm not, you know, I went to school in the projects. So all I have to do is keep walking. And that's all I have to do. Like, that's literally what I did every day. So now you're just telling me to walk up a mountain. So it's basically, so you're saying like taking that lack of awareness that a lot of brands, people don't really see that it takes so much for a person of underprivileged to get to 
to experience. And by the time they get there, they've already gone through so much mentally to experience that, that those that are privileged don't even know how to relate to it. And for me, like when people are like, how are you climbing in those conditions and still going? It's like, my mind's already learned how to handle this already. If you just give resources to those athletes that are willing to do this and invest in them, I guarantee you're going to see a, a bigger return on investment, not just on that, your company, but also within the community as a whole. So, yeah. You've, you talk a lot about um, one, of, one of the th- things I've seen from, from doing some research into like previous conversations that you've had is, you know, you're really, you're really open about you, the fact that you've used like, I was raised by a village, you know, like the, the, the people around you yeah. really gave, gave you the, help to broaden your horizons to the point where this would seem like it like something that you could do almost um because it is yeah. culturally you know we're talking about cultural expectations we're talking about cultural circumstances we're talking about who gets the right to almost do what really in our society and those mm-hmm. those kind of those kind right. of barriers are so invisible yet entrenched if you like that we we all take them for granted mm-hmm. but but essentially it is very, very unusual for somebody of your background to kind of be on this path, isn't it? Which is, which is mm-hmm. a shocking thing to say almost, you know, but it is true. Like it's, it's not, it's not common. And obviously that's something that you're trying to change. So what do you put the, do you put the upbringing that you had from your grandparents and your mom and the fact that they, they helped to kind of show you these possibilities is that was that one of the things that kind of set you on this path to almost like because you know you mentioned earlier like I was from my background I should have gone one way you know like really like my my Mm -hmm. path was set like the life that I should have led and obviously you've done something completely different so I guess my question is like where where we where did you get the impetus and the 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 desire to change that from and I'm guessing like a large part of that was from from the inspiration that you got from your family and your immediate people that helped to to bring you up right yeah for sure and that's a good question matt like honestly that's well phrased up for it because it came from my family my you know my great-grandmother my grandmother my mom my uncles and my grandfather and my brother you know I, again not growing up with a dad i never really cared for it i don't even know what he looks like and everyone's like does that bother you and i'm like no, I'm, I exist. I'm pretty happy. I get to exist. This is pretty cool. You know? And I'm like super excited about that. And people are like that has to bother me. Like, no, like I think early on I learned that the people that love you are there for you. And like, if you don't focus on those people, you're going to miss out on some beautiful moments with them. And so for me, like my great grandmother taught me how to read when my mom was working and really busy, like supporting three kids and herself. And then my grandmother you know, gave me the opportunity to see the world, you know, when she, you know, took me out of Detroit and got to let me go see and live in different parts of the world. I got to experience that. And my uncles taught me what it meant to be, you know, masculine, but also not to be compassionate at the same time and getting that compassion from my mom as well. And she was doing two, being two roles, a working woman and a hard disciplined dad at the same time. So for me, watching all those people in my family that never been to college being successful in their own right and happy they just cracked open the door for me and when that door was open they gave me the opportunity to go and run and that's the difference when people talk about a george floyd or about aubrey or you know the the difference between those gentlemen and myself is just opportunity statistically i would just be the same as them 
and people would really always like, like again like me going to college on a full on a d1 scholarship you know getting into like morehouse and you know getting like deciding i, I didn't i was like i'm not going to go to morehouse and like have an opportunity to choose comes down from that foundation which was my family that gave me the discipline the compassion and the door and the opportunity to choose that path as i so wanted and um that's my village at the end of the day and now when i go out and like like you said earlier like what's the plan i sit back and i think intentionally about who is wants to be in this village on this long journey up these mountains till we get to everest and then looking about like people like oh that's cool i want to be a part of them like do you have the mental capacity to deal with what's about to come because there's going to be people that are going to say some pretty nasty things about the way i look or i should be doing and my family let's go back to the, the beginning of this they dealt with civil unrest coming from a mixed generation you know mixed background black white hispanic they already dealt with that so they already knew what to prep me for and how to carry myself i just had to keep doing it and find my own framework and that's the same thing i think and now like who wants to coach me who has the time who has the patience who understands what i'm trying to do and um without my grandparents and my great grandmother my late great grandmother i wouldn't be the man i am today that can sit down meditate and be intentional about not just the project but what comes after it when i'm done with it as well so well it's about giving people the opportunities to imagine a new way of life for themselves though isn't it you know like and i think i often because the, yeah. the question of the question of privilege is obviously something that's been debated endlessly over the last year um and you know to the point that there are people on the other side of the argument who sort of claim privilege doesn't exist and you know all this stuff that we that we kind of know about but you know pri privilege yeah. privilege for me is like what i what i've come to understand is it's it's the the right to imagine a different life for yourself on on a lot of different levels right. like if you're if you're white okay. and you come from the background that i come from for example which is very privileged you know the idea that i could live a different life than the one i was born into is pretty is is pretty normal you know like i can i can go right. and do what i want i can go and do what i want really you know like and and from when i was a kid i was kind of told that i could do what i want if i wanted yeah. if i wanted to go and do a season as a snowboarder i could do that if i want to go and live in a different part of the world i could do that for whatever job i wanted i could do that to me yeah. is what privilege is and I, that that isn't that that freedom to imagine these new ways of life for yourself isn't open to everybody because as you say no nope. when you when you come from a particular as you put it the accident of birth means that you're born into a particular situation with a particular historical mm -hmm. legacy and particular cultural legacy that can define the, the future that you imagine for yourself very very narrowly i think that is just mm -hmm. very true and and the, the conversation yeah. the conversation that's going on at the minute for me is about well everybody should have the freedom to imagine a new life for themselves and everybody should have the freedom exactly to to to, mm -hmm. to choose and and for a lot of historical and cultural reasons that isn't the case for everybody and that to me mm -hmm. is why the work that phil's doing the work that you're doing is really important and that's why when people say, oh, well, the outdoors is for everybody. Like, what's the big deal? <laughs> like, you know, if you if you want to if you want to go and like if you want to go and like go for a go and climb a mountain or like 
and it's usually white people that say that and it's usually white people that are just so used to the idea that for them they can do what they want if they want to you know what i'm saying like and i think i think that is why this conversation is so important and that's the power of the idea that you've got because essentially you're kind of saying i've made my own future here it wasn't the one that was that was given to me it wasn't the one that that people from my background even knew about but i've kind of created it and yeah it took support it took people that 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 opened doors for me as you say but that's the point of this conversation isn't it the point of this conversation is to say and everybody should have that freedom to imagine the future in the way that they want and i think as there's a, there's a lot of work to do, I think, but that's why I think that this, 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 yeah, I mean, obviously I'm joking, like, but like, that's why this is important. And that's why this is, that's what, that's why the more that these conversations can be had in the open and addressed, then the more, yeah, the more it's going to change. Right. Exactly. I would be hundred percent with you. And I think anyone that I've listened to, majority of all your podcasts leading up to this Matt which are amazing because you asked amazing questions and the one you did with Sal was showed exactly what you just described about privilege versus non-privilege when we had protesting and by we I mean the people around the world of what happened with George Floyd Breonna Taylor Mon Arbery uh there was and I I was just I'm going to talk about my own privilege in a second what that means to me the media betrayed when we were peacefully protesting as individuals, multicultural in America, about what was human rights. There was gas. There was, you know, police, armed police who were beaten. What happened in Portland, which was never really talked about on huge media outlets. It was pretty much never even like you had to thank you, Sean King, for pushing that out there for people to see it on other platforms. But again, then let's fast forward to January 6th right? You see people walk into the state capital as if the doors were open, as if it's Mall of America and revolving doors doing things. It's like, like the queue the for a concept. ride at Disneyland. <laughs> you know, it's like... Exactly. You're just like, so yeah, you're like, hey, oh, I want to go into the state capital, put my feet up on like, you know, where the constitution, like, and cry. I'm like, so basically you're telling me that if I'm a privileged individual with a certain complexion that I can get away with going in to harm our voted in representatives of our country and scare them so much because I'm so angry of change that not one of any of you will be shot with any pellet, tear gas to cry, you will be carried out peacefully. But let's now fast forward to what happened before that. Our, I'm going to say the 45th, Mr. 45th said, if the looting doesn't stop, the shooting stops. It was in his Twitter. I'm just going to paraphrase that exactly what I saw. No one was shot that day, really, on the 6th and of January. But everyone else had to deal with gas, federal employees, taking people into unmarked vehicles, zip tying them into certain cities of color. And, and this is just us saying we want just not the basic essentials, the same rights that our constitutional says we have. It shouldn't be a question of when I drive my car down the street, when a cop pulls me over and says, how can you afford this car? I have to explain that I have two degrees and I work for mostly of the corporations that you send your family to and enjoy. That shouldn't be the case. So when it comes to privilege for me, 
let's now get back to that definition you're talking about. Privilege to me means this. You have the ability, to your point, to imagine in your mind a free space. Yes, the mind is the biggest space in the universe if you want it to be and also the smallest. And not to contradict myself, where I'm going with this is when you have to think about can you walk home safely without being stopped by the cops or being harmed by an individual? You have to fill that space in your mind with so many ways to stay safe. Where's my food going to come from? Will I get this job? Will I be said racial remarks? Well, now let's take that same idea and put it in the outdoors. I live in Southern California. Hunter Jones, myself, Sal, and a few others, we are probably the only African-Americans you see in the lineup outside. I will go out to Malibu and I look around and yes, everyone looks black because they're wearing black wetsuits, but on the surface of their head, they're all white and I can see that. So it's not really hard to find me or a hunter. We can just see each other down the lineup. And I can tell you the time I saw Sal, I was like, that's Sal at Venice because I was like, that's the only other black person I've ever seen out here in like my three years living here. And so again, people that live in Compton or Inglewood are not that far from the beach. You're pretty close to it, to be honest with you. Like if you're looking on a map, yeah. what those people are doing are trying to survive because economically they're not given the same institutional opportunity to explore and fill that mind with what you're describing of the ability to be outdoors. Let's not take it to the mountains. It costs money to be in those mountains. And I'm going to say, let's break it down from a very micro, I mean, micro level. You need a car to get to the mountains, right? You can't just ride your bike to Mount Whitney here or to Mount Baldy. That's, <laughs> you could if you want to. You, I, if you want to ride your bike to Mount Baldy, please do that and then run up the mountain. I will I will high five you and give you some Venmo for that for sure. <laughs> but again, those people in those in communities are not given the same opportunity to actually, and what I mean by opportunity, I mean investing in education. So they do are able to go to certain schools and then have the ability to get certain jobs that are not screening based off. I'm like, okay, why can't we find Again, before I go on a little tangent, let's back up. Why can't we find individuals of color that are attending MIT from America at a high rate? And I always say this, if you want those individuals to be there, and if I were to take a portfolio of everyone that's graduated from, let's say MIT to some degree, what you will find is why is it so hard to find an African-American that is highly trained in mathematics and engineering and in aerospace? I can tell you probably because you're not investing into mathematics early on within those inner city communities or those urban communities. So therefore, you're not really giving them the opportunity to springboard into that kind of thinking style. That's the same as you think of outdoor community. If you don't give someone the opportunity to really do that and invest in those communities, they're never going to get to the ocean because they're trying to just survive with food. And I can speak truth to that because in Detroit, the last thing I was thinking about, and I always say this, the first mountain I ever climbed is every day from 770 Asri Park to the projects of my school and back. And I wasn't thinking like, can I go climb Kilimanjaro? I was like, I'm just trying to survive. I'm just trying to have food on the table. That is more than likely why representation matters because if someone of color sees themselves outdoors, now they can't imagine it and they can be like, I can't exist there. I just need to find the framework to get there. And that's your point why Phil and I really are passionate about this because I tell everyone the Between Worlds project was never about 
Andrew Alexander King. And it was mostly, I, I was very hesitant to make it about me for a very, very long time because I didn't want to take away from other nonprofit stories. I really didn't want to do that. And people were like, well, you got to tell your story where you came from. And I was like, all right, I'll do it. At the end of these 14 climbs, I'm going to go back to being the guy that's just, you know, behind the scenes. It's someone else's turn. That's it. Like, and I'm still, you know, the face of this in 10 years, I've done it wrong. It should be a individual from India or a woman that's fighting for her rights in the Middle East or some individual that's in Africa fighting from xenophobia or like colonialism. That's what this is about. They should be have the brand set up be like, this is how you do it. This is the framework. This is the road. Here's the map. Let them go. Um, and to talk to you about privilege, just to make sure I can end it on this note. I wrote this on my Instagram about an experience I had here when we did have looting. And it's a true story to the point. When we had rioting and looting in Santa Monica, um, it was pretty hard because I was with, you know, downtown in the people peaceful protest and it flipped from peaceful protest to looting in an instant. It went really scary. Like again, promenade, if anyone's ever been in Santa Monica, you know what I'm talking about where the promenade is. It went from people protesting and being peaceful to cars pulling up, blocking, you know, certain exits and people breaking into like Patagonian REI. I'm sitting there with my camera and I've seen rides before from like being in Egypt and like other places around the world and seeing what rides are like. I'm like, okay, I've, I know what a ride's going to look like when it's coming and I'm fine. I'm like, okay. During this moment, I see two white guys standing in front of REI protecting it. It's REI. They got millions of dollars. They're not going to really give you a badge or a cookie for that. You know, straight up <laughs> REI, I love you guys. But I'm just be very honest. You, you weren't going to hand out cookies or badges to them or free gear. That was the truth. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm looking at the wave come down. I'm like, okay, they're trying to protect the front door. These wave of looters are coming down. And they're busting the side windows. I see these two white guys run into a crowd of like 30 to 60 people. It's a pretty massive crowd. And I already know how this is going to end. That's like running into a gazelle, running into the mouth of a lion. I'm like, this is not going to end well. I'm looking at it. I run. I take one guy. I, I intersect. I'm like, don't go do it. Stay here. Hold my camera. I'm going to get your friend. By the time I get to his friend who's standing in front of that window, he's beaten bloody in the mob of like looters who just beating the crap out of him. Right. And so I come in and I put my body between them. And this is where I want to just draw this conclusion. This is where privilege happens. I now have the privilege with my skin color to stop this intersection of violence because I am black from beating, killing this man. I could have used my privilege to say like, well, that guy's getting what he deserves. I'm out of here. Yeah. Let me just go home and, you know, and eat my cereal and see it on the news. That space in my mind of growing up in a turbulent environment and seeing violence and choosing to use my privilege to help someone else is what privilege means to me. So stepping in and just saying, hey, just let me get him out of here. Everyone just stops kicking him. He's already bloody from the face and it was just bleeding. And I'm like, dude, you got to just run. Like they don't care about you. They're getting in that store no matter what. So I get this guy up. I get him to his feet. And when I get him to his feet, someone starts punching me in the back of my head and taking my like phone out of my pocket, my card, my ID. And it's a black kid. I turn around and it's just this black young kid punching the crap out of me. And I look at him. I'm like, hey, first off, this kid is 
punching horribly. His head is down. His arms are locked. And he's just swinging. I'm like, you're not going to kill me because if you want to kill me, like you're, you're basically not going to do it. And I just, I'm like, I could probably just take this kid and just break his arm easily. And I just let him keep punching because at that point, I see that kid is me from back in the day where you had to fight your way out and prove yourself to your community. And privilege again is like, what do you do in that moment? And I just let him keep punching me. As the white guy gets away, the two white guys get away, my camera's stolen, my phone is stolen, and everyone disperses when the cops get there. And I just walk home bloody and treat my wound and go surfing with my friends. I'd say, I tell the story because that's the difference between using privilege, knowing privilege, and handling it in a certain way. So that's my Which tangent all, on that. Wait, wait, but, but it's important because it is always a choice and it is a power. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it, it brings me to the incident at Manhattan Beach. I mean, that was like, I just listened to yeah. um, Ryan, is it? Um, on So Splendor. Yeah, right. And, right, yeah. and, and Salema yeah. was talking about it as well. And that was almost one of the most shocking parts about that whole incident, the fact that there were so many people there who had the power mm-hmm. and the, and the mm-hmm. agency to stop it. And nobody did. And, and again, that, that, mm-hmm. and obviously that incident was horrible, but what that incident was really about was again, control access, who had the right to be in that space, like the, mm-hmm. and, and, and the historical, entrenchments that exist because of the cultural history that's led us to that point you know like and yeah it it and that was an example of privilege not being used and that power being being ignored which was what almost made it so shocking Mm -hmm. really i think particularly what's been going on in the last year with the with the wider conversation in for example Mm -hmm. the surf community yeah and i think that for me like i went to that paddle out and um for me I've been, this is where everyone talks about that photo on Instagram where everyone sees me jumping into the barrel at Zigatel in Puerto Escudino. That photo is fueled by people. I remember, (laughs) thanks, thanks. I'll be be back down there in like a week or two weeks. But um, people didn't know, like being someone of color, you know, the only place I didn't experience racism was Hawaii to me. Because I was like, oh, these are brown, like these people of color and they're, you know, they're basically fending off white people and i was like oh this is cool i was like oh my god they're like they're like really like <laughs> taking in the hawaii and i was like i was like when i was a kid i was like oh my god this is so amazing this is like i was like this is the opposite i was like this is, is this real and what it told me in my mind was it was like they weren't just fighting to protect the lineup they were protecting their culture and they did it in such a humane loving way that you had no choice but to respect that culture no matter what race or color you were and when you look at surfing for me as a as a a african-american male um what i look at is as that photo down in mexico it was fueled by people saying like you know earlier in the day la punta where people were like oh you know you're not like black guys can't surf. I mean, swim. So how can you surf and such? And I was just like, oh, okay, cool. And what I did is I took it down to Zigatella and I just saw the same person. I just went for it and I pulled right into that barrel and I just shot through it. And I told, I was like, I learned from my grandparents and to your point for me, at least everything you send to me is rocket fuel, negative or positive. I just take the same log and I put it into the rocket fuel and it blasts me forward because I've learned how to use that mentally in my space, in my head. Manhattan Beach now showed me a very, 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 very 
sad truth of when we had Black Lives Matter, when we had, we still do, when we had what happened this summer, everyone put up a black card, like 200, sorry, 2.7 million people or something like that. I may get like, I could get those numbers wrong. Sorry if I'm not a mathematician. But out of all those people that did it, you are putting up just a hashtag and being like, I'm done. Cool. I did my work. You are now sitting and seeing a real life situation that's asking you to be more than a hashtag, be beyond social media, be beyond what you're doing. And that did not translate to that moment. And that was the truth because people move so fast on hashtags and be like, I did something like if we were to be a little bit more intentional, have that opportunity to think of that privilege we have, that instance would have been over in an instant. It would have been diffused right then and there. I look at that photo. I'm like, you have what? 20 people in that water watching it go down Two, three people could have just went over and be like, enough is enough. We're good here. And none of it happened. It took a protest of everyone coming together and be like, oh, you know what? We could have done something better. And I want to say this right now. If we would have done those things sooner, Amon Arbery would have probably got home. You know, that's what I think about. I think about George Floyd would have got, you know, seven seconds, nine seconds of his life back. If we would have thought about that, been more intentional. But it's after the fact we do something. And I just keep seeing it over and over. I'm like, at some point, you got to be more than just what you put on paper and stand for those core values. And it's really scary because, like I told people, um, for me, when I resigned from my position at Live Nation, everyone was like, why are you walking away? Like, you're on the track to go from director one day to maybe VP of what you've done. Like, you've been 10 years of your job, project, and product management. And I wrote to the CEO and the team, and I said, I'm not walking away because I don't love it. I made a promise to my community, my great-grandmother, my friends and family to see this change through. It may cost me everything, but it will not cost our future generation the pain and struggle that I had to see. And I, like I said at the end, I was like, the party that you go to isn't fun if you're the only person there that gets the music and every time you try to invite your friends to it, they're denied. And so I was like, I'd rather go back, get some of my friends, show them what the party's like, and then we're all in together. And that's the point of it for me. So seeing what happened at Manhattan Beach, it was sad. And people were like, well, what should I do? I'm like, be more than just there. Stand up. You know? So that's that's my two cents on that. Do you think, do you think this instance like that, though, and, and the kind of conversation that we're having about that, do you... Do you does it make you feel like change can happen? I mean, that's a big question, obviously. And I, did, I think I asked Lamer a similar question at the end of that conversation. <laughs> but it, it, yeah. it is like, it is an obvious one. And, but, because it is depressing. I mean, not to, not to sort of digress about, hey, let's talk mm-hmm. about me. But like, I, I've actually found this year, I realized recently, like quite depressing because I think it's like, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of fundamentally affected my view of human nature. I think I think I pre mm. which again is probably probably like a very privileged statement, but like I think previously I was a bit like, yeah, people are inherently decent, you know, like but there's nothing like a pandemic and uh, the harsh glare yeah. of a conversation that we've had around 
race as we've had for the last year to kind of really show the naivety perhaps of that belief and and at the minute mm. like we've got a huge thing going on at the minute in the uk like um around women's safety as well saw, um, yeah, and it's that that, that debate is is unfolding to be honest along similar lines really you know there's Mm-hmm. There's even there's even a a not all men hashtag to go along with the all lives matter hashtag that's doing the rounds, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's just depressed me really. I th- I think I just I, I've kind of it's almost made me think like actually maybe people are just selfish twats who don't want to who don't want to <laughs> who don't want to cha- change and learn. No, I, I sound like such a such a kook here saying this, but like. It, you know, and it's been one of those years where yeah. you kind of have a lot of time to think about this stuff. But you know, you know what I'm saying. Like, so I guess because because it is what we've talked about is is can be quite depressing. You know, like when you get into it. Do you, do you yeah. feel like though that that, yeah. that there can be? I mean, I guess the answer is in the in the deeds that you're undertaking. But do do you feel there can be a positive outcome from all this? Do you feel like do you see a change, a positive change happening? Yes, I do. And the reason I'm not, I mean. The, the cool thing about my upbringing is being a realist and optimistic. And though I do study Buddhism and Taoism, and that's my way of studying, getting through life and how I navigate that space of the time I have here, I do see there is change happening. Change is incremental. It's not accelerated. You know, and I think everyone's like, it's going to be like that. We're literally changing the way that we have been for years. And I'm going to be the blessing and the curse of the pandemic is it made us slow down to really look at ourselves. When you're moving at such a high velocity, you're not really taking the time to be intentional about where you're going. You can be like, oh, I'm trying to go to the grocery store, but like, are you really looking? Like, that's like an example. I leave my house, I'm driving to the grocery store. Am I speeding at the speed? I'm speeding so fast that I'm not noticing the homeless person on the street or someone getting mugged. I'm just going to the grocery store, got my groceries. Same person still getting mugged on the way back. Homeless yeah. guy is still homeless on the way. All right, tomorrow I do the same thing. I notice when I, I slow down a little bit, I'm like, wow, that person's getting mugged again. That homeless guy is still homeless. The pandemic made a roadblock that you had to slow down and see yourself for what it actually evolved into, what, where humanity is going. Um, and an existential point to your question, if we can't get things we, as a human species, right, how are we going to get it right when we move to different parts of you know the universe at some point? You know, like If we can't get it right here, right now, it doesn't really give us a sense to really come together and take on what else is out there beyond what we have here on this planet. And so I think we're heading in a direction that's going to take time like anything else. And you get back to what you said, Phil and I doing the work on this is and Sal as well. And Ryan is, I know that I'm not going to probably be around to see this tree grow of change that shade. And my, my good, my good mentors, um, Stan Evans sent this to me, the change that we're doing, which a lot of people don't see, it, it starts as a seed, it grows into you know a small tree and then grows into a big tree. And that tree has shade for people to sit under and not be burned by the sun. And um, it's gonna take time. And I know that I'm probably not gonna be able to sit under that tree with you know um, my niece and nephews or if I have children and so forth and so on, or you know any other persons I meet that has kids. But I do think it's happening. It may not be at a, such an accelerated rate, but I think over time, the next generation, is going to be so self-aware, especially with technology, to be like, that's not right. I'm going to take a photo of this and blast it on a media syndicate, you know, and like really push that out there. And so it forces brands and countries to change and 
to your point, I would just say as I was traveling, what, two years ago now? Holy crap, two years ago now? I was in Santiago for their protesting on human rights, like down there in their capital. I remember seeing that go down when I was on my way to Aconcagua. They were doing it in um, Bolivia when I was there. And I was just, I kept flying into these places and I was like, why does everyone keep protesting? And I was just like, kept sitting there being like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And then as it slowly made its way up into America, then George Floyd happened. I was like, whoa, like I just literally just saw so many protesting just happening. So I think, and just what happened just now in Mexico City, which I'm heading down to this Friday, um, I now see that people are tired of being just the status quo. You know, they, they now get that, like, this is only this way is because we did not push through beyond what we said we were going to do. And so we only can hold ourselves accountable. Is it depressing to see? Yes. And I think change is really hard. It's gritty. It's sweat. It's blood. It's tears. It's sacrifice. But when you break through that glass ceiling and you get through it, you can breathe. And I think everyone is tired of being suffocated by their countries by their laws that are outdated and by the social racial and sexist um stereotypes that really don't give people safety that data deserves in their once in a once in a lifetime they have so yeah the one thing that strikes me about the project is is again quite an obvious observation but the scale of it i mean it's a big it's a yeah. big it's a it's a life's work isn't it you know like where, quickly where are you at with it like how far in so honestly, I've already done three, but we're, I'm redoing all the mountains again. I've already done three out of the 14, so I'm redoing them all again. So starting Friday, I head down to I head down to Mexico to climb the highest volcano in North America and three other volcanoes and go from there again and start and then lead up to Denali and then start again. But yeah, the Between Worlds project is a big project. And I, I would say I always hold brands this before I had any sponsorships until this year. I was going to do it if it took me 50 years. I was going to do it if it took me five years. I was going to do it if it took me 10 years. The point of it is in, I think I'm grateful to know you and get that out there, but the point of it is when this is done for me on my story of this at the top of Everest, I can be like, you can go talk to Matt. Matt will tell you you're part of the Between Worlds project. I want to be an old tattoo guy on the beach. And I say this to everyone and I'm like, this is what I write, my, I write every time down. I go, I'm going to be an old tattoo guy back in the beach in Hawaii, walking down, and someone's going to be like, hey, I got a scholarship from the Between Worlds Project to go be a mountaineer guide in Europe. And we're going to smile at each other. And they're like, what are you smiling about? And I'm going to say nothing, and I'm going to keep on walking. And I'm going to go watch people surf that pipeline, and it's going to be the most diverse lineup. It's going to be black, Asian, white, Hispanic, going for the pipeline masters, men and women. And I'm just going to be like, all right, that's all it was for. That's it. So it is a life's work. It is a lot of work. It's a lot of patience. But like I told everyone, it's like, I don't fall in love with the goal per se. I know what I want it to look like, but I'm falling in love with the journey each day. Like the grind of waking up, training, going through it, sitting down, working with people and brands, because that's all it's about. So, Which came first, the the, the, the project, like the, the physical feat or the, the message that you're trying to convey? The message, for sure. 100% came way first because honestly, Matt, I'll just say this on here. I didn't have a desire to be like, I want to be the first African-American to climb, you know, ever since such at this scale or like all seven. It was more about just being a better human being when I went to these countries to give back, you know, like I was already, 
I was already climbing just to go back to the beginning of this. Like I climbed islands first around the world, like the highest mountain in each island besides Antarctica. So if I, when I do Vincent, I'll be the first African-American to do the highest island on each, in each ocean. But like I was doing islands first. Cause like I'll get to the top of the mountain, meditate, and then I'll come down and surf. That was my thought. I was like, I just want to get to the top, meditate, come down and surf some waves. Good and, uh, and then that was a, yeah, it was a plan. So, and then over time, I was just like, I, I don't want to be someone just absorbs resources to your point where it's kind of colonialism where you go, you absorb a brain, like you absorb a culture. You don't really sit down and listen to what they need. Like, and this is a difference for the Between Worlds project. It's not meant to go into a place, be like, we're here to captain save you. We're here to save you. Here you go. Yeah. From developed nation, just throw out hundred dollar bills. Like, like T-Pain out of Atlanta strip club or something. I don't know. But like, I don't really think of it like that. <laughs> you know, like you, you, it's about sitting down and being intentional. So any nonprofit I work with, I look into to see how funded they are, what message you're trying to push out. Does it align with my core values, which are the between what's core values? And if it does, I say, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm not here to disrupt your operations. This is truly who I am. And they usually are like, are you seriously just going to come in and give us $200 of whatever we want? I'm like, yep. You seem like you really you need that. And they're like, what do you want? I'm like, I just want to learn about your experience, what you need, write about it, help you push it out there into the world as I go and climb or surf within your community with your blessing. And that message has been for six years, the cornerstone of the Between Worlds Project. The climbing the seven summits and the seven volcanoes is the vehicle to show that humanity, to your point, can evolve and be more than just there. If it has the opportunity to see how to do it, and then it's not a question of can it, if it, the question is how is, are you willing to? Because you have that framework set up. And so that's the way I see it as. And um, it hasn't changed for me since. Uh, I, I still have a good team I call Gravity that keeps me humble and keeps me grounded and makes sure that I stay on my toes and get enough sleep. So, yeah. Why, why is it the right vehicle for this message? I think it's the right vehicle because, to your point, you don't really see a lot of people of color outdoors climbing, you know, volcanoes, mountains, or surfing big waves. You just don't. It's such a foreign thing. It's like people are like, I don't, I'm not used to seeing that guy up here. I'm not used to seeing that. But it's, you. it's again, that vehicle is showing that change is possible. If a guy can come from one of the most dangerous cities in the world, and have that love and compassion and understanding to push through and you come from a place of privilege you can do the same too if you wanted to and if you're coming from the same you know circumstances if you wanted to the opportunity is there it's not easy by any means and that's why i don't sugarcoat my training or anything like it is not easy waking up every day and being like i'm gonna go grind it out get my butt kicked and be humbled every day but it is worth it at the end if you do it. And so showing people that we're not just climbing physical mountains, we're climbing mental mountains, we're climbing mental emotions and getting through it. That's why I think it's the right vehicle because, and just to hit on the head, like back we said, standing on the top of the highest mountain in each continent and learning from the communities along the way where I can speak to that and people can see that shows that we're breaking through that glass ceiling, not just metaphorically, but physically as well as I go forward. It's not just about seeing me at the top. It's about seeing 
the women that are fearing for their lives, the women, the men that are fearing for, you know, getting shot by cops, the individuals that are feeling their social economical barriers. It's to your point, it should not matter what color, race, or gender you identify as, you should have the freedom to pursue these pursuits if you so choose with the opportunity. And so that's why I think it's the best one for it. I mean, I could do F1, but Lewis Hamilton already has that on lockdown. <laughs> well, but that's why it's it's the layers. Though. That's what I was getting at because it's so it's so multi layered. Yeah. You know, there's obviously the physical yeah. side, the message, and then the visibility. I mean, that that's just three off the top of my head. But like, it's yeah, there's it, yeah. it is fascinating, and it is it is a like the. I, I thought I understood the kind of scope of the ambition of it, but I, I actually didn't until we spoke. Like it's, you know, it is a life's work, isn't it? Essentially that you're setting yourself up for here. Yeah. And I think a lot of the times when brands, so I got like, I got my first brands that sponsored me were Black Diamond and like Cedar Summit, Mammut, And then, um, yeah. And like, okay, they got into it and they were like, they sat down they're like, oh, oh, this is just not like a one, like a date, like a, yeah. a one year thing. I'm like, no, this is, and then I sat down and I showed them the entire, all the mountains, like every mountain starting from Friday on, I've already listed out for them. Like it shows every mountain. Like I, there is no like, okay, we're going to do something like it's literally like, this is it. And these are the backup mountains. If we can't do one of those in those seasons for training. And when I sit down, they're like, this is a huge undertaking. And I would sit there and be like, for six years, I've been doing this with a GoPro, a drone and an iPhone and a Google pixel now i'm just doing it and if you if i'm doing that with my savings and you're a multi-million dollar company my question to you is what's holding you back and when they hear that they're like oh like yeah it's not overwhelming you just have to do it you have to just take the step and then the next and then get the framework so for me it's like i tell everyone when we get to the top of everest uh it's someone else's turn i hope to find that individual along the journey and I hope to step away and make sure that they have a platform, you know, or people such as yourself and Phil to come to and know that they can have a safe space. But there's so many different layers that we're cracking through. So, yeah. I'm actually hoping to uh, get Stan on the show next month, actually. Oh, Stan Evans? or Yeah, Stan Evans. Yeah, that's who you meant when you said you're oh, yeah, yes. all right. Yeah, yeah, dude, please get Stan. Stan is amazing like so all the photo the photo i posted yesterday of like the sunglasses that's shot by stan like on yeah. like stan and i do work together and him and i yeah him and i he's he's my mentor in photography because you know like the understanding of the media scope so for me i can say this like my mentors now from a corporate space you know have been people from the pats they go live nation like i've had some really amazing mentors but when it came to the outdoor space, honestly, like Matt, like no one taught me how to be a mountaineer or surf big waves. Like I've all just been sitting here watching like Shane Dorian, watching like Larry Hamilton videos or watching like mountaineer videos. Like I just been doing that for years and being like, okay, cool. This is your demand. So it's been a long, you know, journey to like survive and do these things I love to do. Um, but then when it came this recently, people were like, oh, this guy's not playing around. And I was like, no, if I wanted to like train as a joke, I would have went to Disneyland down the street. And so Stan and I met and he was just like, you're serious. I'm like, yeah, like I don't just come into this without like, you know, knowing business and how corporates work. Like I, I'm looking to really push like, so Stan and I work together. And then Melissa Reed, who was, um, yeah, like the first woman to climb Everest without oxygen. It's done it numerous of times. Like she's my coach for that. We go back and forth. 
and and then I have like you know JT who's Soul Focus, you know who's my agent and stuff, and we work together. And yeah, I just have and then a few other people I work out with, like the Deep Fitness crew and those teams. Now they they just help me really navigate that space and humble me every day of my life, every day of my life. So so yeah. You mentioned that you've got a few sponsors on board now. So before that, it was all self-financed. It was all, you kind of, mm-hmm. so to, it to was go. all self-finance, out of pocket. It still is. The Between Us project doesn't, so I don't take money. I got to put this word. It's kind of interesting. The money for the climbs themselves are helped sponsored by some of these brands. Like Black Diamond does make gear. Cedar Summit does my outdoor, like, you know, bags and tents and stuff. I like I like um, uh, accessories. And then, you know, there's Momo for my boots on the climbs as well. And then Von Zipper, that's, you know, Greg, I mean, sorry, GT. Thank you for that, man. You're amazing. Um, for like, you know, goggles and such. They, it's a village. It goes back to that village mentality. Like they truly sat down and they believed in what I was trying to do. And to your talking about this with brands, a lot of brands didn't. A lot of brands, to be very honest with you, were like, yo, we're like, we need people of color. We need people of color. And they're like, we can't find a new athlete of color. And I was just like, of course you can't because you didn't invest into that. That's like you going to like your garden and be like, I need carrots, but I never like put down a seed for a carrot. You know, and I'm like, you didn't <laughs> like, so, like you can't put that in your, like your stew if you didn't ever like plant the seed and like water that spot for it. So now you're just like, okay, I got to go. I'm like, so when brands were, you know, going through the, you know, the phase of it, like I was reaching out to people and vice versa, they were reaching out to me a lot of brands didn't were kind of pulled back that I had core values and I showed them my core values. I'd be like, these are my four core values. Do you align with that? Yes or no. And because if you don't, there's nothing really to discuss beyond that. Cause I'm not breaking these core values. They are literally my lighthouses to make sure I come home safely and make sure we see this through. And so black diamond was the first brand that really stuck to it. And Tyler Wilcock, you know, former athletic manager there, got exactly what the between worlds project was and then the rest of the team really was like this is bigger than any mountain i'm like yeah this is bigger than all of us like i'll i'll use my story of my life and i'll be vulnerable for sure and do that but just to let you know like i'm one of millions out there that if they had the opportunity they probably would have been on your roster already so getting those sponsors to really think not to see that not every athlete's gonna be on a very elite level it's back to your point it's a very colonial fraternal fraternity kind of sport um both in surfing and as well mountaineering but the reason why you don't see athletes of colors because you didn't invest in them which we talked back about mit and that's such an opportunity and there were brands that when i sat back with like jt even him and i within my agent we were like let's look at brands that are serious about this because as soon as they take off with me they're on this journey. Like there's going to be racial remarks we're going to get. There's going to be people coming at me from different angles. And I'm like, are you going to stand with me? Not just on the top of the mountain when I have your gear on, but through this entire journey with me. And those were the brands that we went back on discussions, made me feel not just safe, but heard and made me think of, again, if I were no longer doing this in 10 to 20 years, could I say to the next person coming up, you can go be at this brand and there's a place for you at the table and an agenda and pen and pad waiting. So I think that's a really interesting point. A good, a good friend of mine the other day made a similar point 
we were talking about this whole conversation and he was saying that he's been quite he's really noticed how like yes in the last year some brands certainly have attempted to have a more diverse message or or like for example use people like phil to tell their stories but then when the criticisms okay. that, that follow haven't really supported haven't have, have kind of left people mm-hmm. quite isolated you know it's a bit like the manhattan it's a bit like the manhattan beach scenario writ large across the industry yep. you know like you can you can give people a platform and an opportunity but unless you're then prepared to actually back and when it gets tough it's kind of not really worth it yeah is it? that's crazy because i'll tell you a story there's a really amazing athlete and i promised her coming on your show i would talk about her. i asked her before i i said this i say like, can i talk about your experience because she was with a really big brand outdoor brand she was a really big brand and uh, she was a first person of color i think on their current roster and she made it very clear that if the brand didn't back her up with the trolling of racial comments on their social sites, she would leave. And Lord behold, she stuck to her guns. And she was like, I want out. You didn't help me. You didn't back me up. You didn't take down the trolling comments. You didn't like, you know, you didn't, you didn't care about my, you, you prioritize your needs over my human, you know, dignity. And when a brand does that, that's not a relationship anymore. You know, and I, I get what brands are doing because again, being in that corporate space, it's all, again, let's just, let me, let me just break it down. When you sign with a brand, and I knew this going through, you know, working in, you know, NFL, like Lego and such, you, those are image rights. Image rights are basically saying, I can put your face on something as an ad, that ad you wearing that clothes will give me market sell value for that, like for that clothing. Someone's going to go buy that because they can see themselves wearing it. And you're going to get X amount of dollars based off of that. It's not going to be incremental revenue. It's going to be a pretty much a static sum of that. So when you put a athlete of color in your ads and you don't pay them anything, you're basically saying to your point, Hey, guess what? We're woke. And I always argue this. I know people get upset about that term, but I say you're still sleeping. You're now slowly waking up to that. And when you put an athlete in your portfolio or on your site that is of color to basically say that you're with the current terms, you can't just pick and choose what that athlete is for you. You're taking in their struggle and their story as well. And that has to be defended until they actually feel they're at an equal playing field with your privileged athletes that have been experiencing this type of gear and um, security normally for a while that you're not going to get that with a athlete of color because we've already been scrutinized to some degree that we shouldn't even be outdoors and so us being here we're already getting a backlash of very very derogatory terms thrown at us and all we want to do is just be able to express ourselves as any other athlete does without having to you know, hide our color, but not on your page. So seeing brands do that, what you just described, where you isolate them is basically making it go backwards and forwards. Doing the inner work, like I say, like talking to your team, be like, if you do sign someone to your team of color, please make sure that you have a DNI work with internally to understand what terms are appropriate to use, what are not appropriate to use, how to use their image appropriately, how to tell their stories articulately. That's from their term. Black Diamond 
didn't take a story and just make it up about me. And it, we, we sat down and I said, this is my life story from start to finish. Let me see what you take from it. You write up and go back and my family and I will agree on it. And if we give the green light, go for it. They did that. And that's why I was like, that's a different relationship. So when anything came out, I knew that CP, Leah, Jess, Oliver, that team, they had my back. And I was just on the mountain, but just like here as I had to, I didn't have to hold space for that anymore. Brands need to do that. You can't, you can't just give gear and call it good. You can't just post something and call it good. Look out for that athlete as if they are your investment for what you truly do believe in. And if you don't believe in it, just don't go down that road. Just stay true. And just keep on going. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is like the metaphor, the Manhattan Beach thing. Like, it's basically, it's it's not enough just to yeah. just to kind of pay lip service to the idea with a, a black square and a hashtag, as you said, is it? You know, there's got to yeah. be some substance behind it. And when, and when the opportunity arises to actually provide support and foundation, like you, you do have to step up, really, or else it is worthless, isn't it, when it comes down to it? It is, and I think that's where you you lose you lose some of the best you lose some of the best athletes that way. And I think people look at like people said to me the other day like you're a beast, and I was like, again, it goes back to I just grew up with a very disciplined family, being a D one athlete, and being in the corporate space, which is even more a beastly thing than I've ever endured over my career. But this is just me loving what I do. Like I love training every day. I love getting up and going to surf, climb. But when you come across an athlete, again, like I had those opportunities to learn from my mentors how not to be exploited, how not to, you know, sign something that doesn't fit my core values, how to define my core values and push back in an appropriate way says we need someone legal in this room to be a mediator for us to get through this. You don't have that with other athletes because they're used to just getting anything to breathe. Again, let's think of the glass ceiling term. If you're just now breaking through that glass ceiling, you're sucking for air on the other side, right? So you're taking any space of that air you can get. And that athlete is thinking like, well, okay, if I don't sign with this brand, then I'm not going to have that oxygen or support. And I, I got to give it up to, I'll leave her name out of it. I got to get up to that she walked away from that brand that didn't support her on feeling that she could get that oxygen and feel safe about receiving it to keep doing what she's doing because that brand was not looking out for that racial trolls that she said she didn't want. If brands don't really say and live by that, then you're going to have a big issue because I'm going to be very candid and honest just with you, Matt, and anyone hearing this is as time goes forward, athletes can use other platforms to generate income for themselves and not have to sign with big brands. You're now looking at a, a series like you have TikTok, you have YouTube, you have Clubhouse. They can grow their brand. And then when a brand comes to them and say, hey, we want to sign, they'd be like, why would I want to sign with you when I make three times as much and I have security on my side? Because you're not going to give me that security. You're not going to moderate that. So if you're not showing that to me, then I don't really need to go with you. I can just go build it myself over here. And if someone says, oh, that's not going to happen, like, I guarantee you're probably going to find someone that's going to think pretty much out of the box of that and do that at some point and be like, I create my own space. Um, but that's that, that will always be the case. If you don't stand up for your athletes on the same way you do for your privileged athletes, you're going to find it very hard to find that nurturing for the carrot. You're always going to be like, I don't have any carrots. So, I like I the agree. carrot metaphor. It's good. It's as, sim it's, it's as simple as, as, any, as, as <laughs> I've ever heard anybody put it. You know, it's, it's, it is, it yeah. is the case, basically, isn't it? 
It is, and I think we're, I was talking, like, who was I talking to? Like, someone goes, like, are you, someone comes up to me and go, are you doing this just for, like, like, the notoriety or the clout? And I go, I said this to them, I was like, I was already more established in my 10 years of doing project and product management. You know, like, I was already dealing in that space and fine there and well-known doing that. I was like, I, I don't, I, I didn't really have to. I could have just been being like, all right, I'm just going to keep going on vacation to the Madalbies or something and keep surfing and be like, cool, it is what it is. It's your problem. Again, <laughs> you know, but like that doesn't, that's pretty selfish. Like, and if I think about it in like retrospect, the way that I was doing the Between Worlds project was pretty selfish because I was hiding. And if you look at any, like any Greek philosopher, and I think of philosophy in this point, like you, the only way you really move forward in life if you don't hide. And I was hiding behind being up on the other side and I made it from Detroit. And I was just like, this is not helping anyone. This isn't nurturing anyone. Like it's just, I'm the only person of color in this room 90% of the time outdoors. I was like, Andrew, you should do something more about it. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm doing the Between Worlds project. I'm like, you should show people beyond that, that it's possible with you. And I never sat down and meditated on that. And, um, now sitting back with brands and being like yeah i'm an athlete but i understand business very well they're like oh shit this is definitely not a guy that you just should just take as a one-dimensional athlete i'm like no and there's other athletes like that too so i I think nurturing people to feel that and get to that point really does help those brands navigate this new space of how to help athletes of less privilege and of color be nurtured and sustain the culture that they want because if you still have a all Caucasian roster in three to five years, it will be very tough for you probably to sell what you're trying to do because you're, you got to think of it. You're, you're actually not even helping the rest of your demographic or, you know, branding portfolio, which I don't understand, but uh, I think it's going to be very interesting in the next yeah, three to five years. You're right. sure. I, I had a question related to something that you mentioned earlier, because when you were describing the experience that you had with the riot and you said you saw the kid who, who was punching you and essentially saw yourself like and the path that you it's the theme of the conversation we're having you know like the the ordained paths that, that we're all given my question is was there a moment that you realized that you could choose your own path so that's a good question i think so to be very open, I'm very open about this. And Matt and you and I have talked and I definitely have her sticker on one of my boards. So it's we're great to talk about this. But um, for me, the moment that I know I could choose my own path was the moment I got sober in life and I stopped drinking completely, you know, partying and such. And the reason why I say that at that moment was because it was very tough as an individual to leave my family go be very disciplined, see the world, leave my brothers and sisters, my mom, um, Detroit, my great grandmother, which I wouldn't see as often and frequent as I used to, and go be the first to be in my entire family tree to go to college. You know, they, they already were like, hey, here's a path, go for it, go for it. I didn't get to choose that path of this where I am now until I really sat down and did some reflecting on myself. You know, I've always played it to hey, this is what my family really needs. This is how I can support them when they're older, which I can I do now. But when I really took a step back and I looked at the trauma that I was running from of being 
an African-American not feeling accepted by the privileged community and being accepted by my community for listening to jazz music or talking to white people would say or doing white things. And I just said, this is my life. I have to live it on my terms with the amount of time I have with it, looking for beautiful moments and being happy. That's when it clicked for me. That's when I said, like, I'm going to take that rocket fuel and go forward. But it didn't happen until, you know, um, about my 20s when I really got into climbing and surfing, which a lot of people are like, oh, you just traded off like drinking for climbing. I'm like, no, that's not the same thing. Um, at that point, it really did push me to be the Andrew Alexander King you see now and accept my full name. Because to your point, at that point, I was like, if I, I never thought of this until to that day, really. And, um, and my grandmother said this all the time. She's like, be proud of your name. And I never understood why she said that. And it clicked in my head was as most, this lottery ticket vessel that I have being African-American, we never got the chance to choose our last name. It was given to us as coming over from slaves and slavery. And so I say my full name now because I told my grandparents and my great grandmother before she passes that I'm going to change how that name is used from now on. When it is seen, it's not going to be seen as you're a black guy. You don't know where your name came from. Like, I know my name. This is what it means. Mountaineer, explorer, climber, human rights, activist. You know, it's called son, grandson, friend, you know, mentor, mentee, lover of life. Boom. Anything else outside of that? Nope. That's it. But to your point, until I really took, I've been accountable face my fears, you know, look myself in the mirror and really said, this is your life, you know, Andrew, what do you want to do with it? Uh, Then I got to change and choose my path. My grandparents got me there, but at that point they couldn't, they couldn't sit inside of my mind and my heart to really help me to find that I had to do that on my own. So there you go. That was me and Andrew. What a fascinating conversation, eh? And what an absolutely lovely man. I think you agree. As I mentioned during our conversation, I didn't really get the scale of his ambition and vision until we had a chat, really. As a Brit, I always find it quite fascinating speaking to an American about race, especially in this modern culture war era we're living through. But and in the UK it's really weaponized right now. There's there's you know, there's almost like an attempt to even stop the conversation which reached its nadir, I would say, with the report that was released last week, basically claiming that there's no problem, everybody. The UK, it's a beacon of racial inclusiveness. This in a report, by the way, that mentions the Windrush scandal twice in its 250 pages. So I'm not sure I'm going to take that that seriously, really. Anyway, I think Andrew's reaction to the idea that privilege doesn't exist as I kind of posited being, you know, devil's advocate, putting that view forward, spoke volumes really. And as I mentioned, and as he discussed at length, it's an attempt to address this lottery that's at the heart of his vision. And I think it's a really unique and cerebral take on the topic and conversations we've all been having for the last year. And I think it's the ambition that makes this such a really important conversation starter. In a way, it doesn't even really matter if Andrew succeeds in his own personal goal of climbing these 14 peaks. His quest is really more an important attempt to take control 
of this narrative in an inclusive, sophisticated and generous way. I think there's something quite beautiful about that personally and uh, I very much enjoyed our conversation. I said something similar during my last episode with Phil Young. It can be quite difficult to know how to navigate your way around these conversations at points. <clears throat> I think I was definitely a little clumsy on occasion. I've even been a little clumsy in this outro. Um, but I'll leave these in because I think it's important that you show this vulnerability and you know the fact that everyone's kind of trying to groping their way around these issues it's the talking about it that's the point which is uh why i keep doing it anyway my thanks to andrew give him a follow over at instagram so you can cheer him on his journey all right thank fuck they've gone and if you're wondering what i'm talking about then welcome to your first ever housekeeping corner and if you're a regular well hello again and you knew what that meant so let's start with a book looking sideways volume one which is drum roll uh, and live and available for pre-order through my website and social channels. It's been out for about a week or so by the time you listen to this, and it's already selling pretty damn rapidly, I must say. So if you're thinking of uh, supporting what I do in that way, I'd get a move on, really. If you somehow managed to miss my multi-channel sales assault on this book, Looking Sideways, Volume 1 is a whopping 250-odd page book that chronicles uh, mine and Owen Toza's three-week pilgrimage to California, during which we travelled from Ventura to San Diego. We were attempting to understand how California board sports culture has shaped the world and shaped our lives and continues to inform the global perspective of California today. So it's all of these things, the book. The main thing I'm interested in is the fact that it's a beautiful photo book, first and foremost. It does full justice to Owen's incredible photography. It's also a look at those questions that I just outlined through our eyes and the people and the eyes of the people we interviewed on the trip. Herbie Fletcher, Jamie Thomas, Carbeth Burnside, Corey Schumacher, the list goes on. Then it's also a look at this Californian action sports culture through the lens of the incredible contributors. We've got people like Jamie Brissick, Jeff Johnson, Rob Machado, Ed Lee, Keith Malloy, Lauren Hill, Chas Smith, Demi Taylor. Again, the list goes on. As you might be able to gather... I'm pretty proud of it. It's been a couple of years in the making and I hope you'll forgive me as a warm to my theme, but that is after all what Housekeeping Corner is all about. It's a bit of a test case this when it comes to the podcast. Now, if you've listened to the podcast at all closely over the years, it probably won't surprise you to hear that I've got fairly strong opinions on the value of art and creativity, especially in this increasingly homogenized and algorithm-led age that we appear to be living in. And it, it seems to be one of the things that listeners to the podcast have really responded to over the months. It's kind of led the way I've approached the whole thing from the beginning. It is why I've never cheapened the format with shit ads for a start. I basically, from the beginning, concentrated on putting something out with as much depth, insight, and creativity as possible, which I've been doing for four years now. And in that time, I've put out Definitely over 180 episodes if you count type two, the bonus episodes and the live shows over the over the months. So the book, as well as being a beautiful, collectible piece of work, is a bit of an extension of this ethos. You know, if you're in my position, you try to fund this because obviously those 180 odd episodes represent quite a commitment of time and energy on my part. And I am like everybody. I do want to get paid at some point. So what do you do? Do you follow the herd? Do you attempt to mitigate the time you've spent by taking 
any old ad or opportunity that comes along and basically contribute to the culture of remorseless, tawdry, disingenuousness that characterizes the modern age. I've got a feeling Paul Evans will enjoy that line if he's listening. Or can you do something different? Can you create something that enriches, that adds to the culture, that provides a platform for people, that values their creativity by making sure everyone gets fairly paid and not just me, and makes a stand for what's important in our culture? Now, obviously, I think you know what my answer is, which is why I've written a book. And that's really the main reason for doing this project. Now, I get it's a hopelessly naive and unfashionable viewpoint at this juncture. I recommend listening to Bill Hicks on this, which sounds hopelessly dated now, but at the time was pretty much what people thought about this. I mean, I know that it's naive and unfashionable because of the response I get from the reams of people whenever I raise this on Instagram who say, just take the ads, mate. We all fast forward them anyway. But I mean, that's kind of the point. Like what a colossal joke that actually is, you know, and what a colossal time and resources. You know, I've got peers of mine who make podcasts who I really respect who've taken ads and they're a bit like to me, just take the ads, like it doesn't matter. You know, everyone forwards them. It means we can do what we do. But I can't, I just can't do it. I mean, I find the disingenuousness, that word again, of modern life, this idea that everything is bullshit and a joke that we're all in on. And we're all going to fast forward the ads anyway. So what does it matter? I just, I'm finding it increasingly depressing and tiring because it really does pervade absolutely every single element of our lives. I mean, it's how we're fucking governed for a start. So I am fucked if I'm going to include my little corner of the internet in that and be party to it. So I'm doing it this way. Consider it a motherfucking flag in the ground that says, isn't there a better way of doing this? I mean, I'd like to think so. The way that I look at it is every time you support the independent publishing project or you make side hustle or something independent that you're passionate about, you're placing a vote for the type of world that you want to live in and the type of creativity that you value. It's why I go out of my way to support my friends when they're working on their own project. It's why I go out of my way to answer every single message and email that I get from people. You should do that too. You should always, always support your mate's creative stuff. Go to the gigs, share their thing. Who fucking cares if it's shit? I mean, who do you think you are? Clive fucking Davis. The point is the encouragement and the community. It's not the X factor. It's the fact people are doing good shit. You should support that. And it's why I'm grateful for every single pre-order of the book and every single message I get saying how much the podcast means to him. My stock answer when everyone asks me, when everyone asks me how long I'm going to be doing this which is another question that I get a lot, is, well, it's a life work, to be honest, which sounds like a joke, but it isn't. It is a life's work, this. And if I'm going to do it, I mean, fucking hell, I've been doing it for 30 years. If I'm going to be do, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it in the right way. And I'm going to like try and have a little corner that is not fucking, you know, like every other area of life, which is basically disingenuous bullshit sorry that's the word of the day isn't it anyway i told you it was idealistic and if you're still listening <laughs> i salute you but I, you know it's important this stuff which leads me nicely to the next project i've turned my attention to don't worry i won't be lecturing people at this point anyway i've mentioned this before but now the book's done i'm going to be looking at another project and that is Looking Sideways Live the thing that i've been talking about for a while now um yeah we've made some progress with this one 
found a really great venue in Wales who seemed pretty interested in the idea. And I still think the idea is really strong. I mean, we're looking at next year, 2022, for this event. Thinking I'm going to try and sell around 200 tickets. I, that sounds pretty doable for me, really. Um, so if you if you like the sound of it, let me know because that will kind of help me get an indication if we might have a chance of shifting those 200 tickets. The idea, as I've mentioned before, is to make this a regular event, probably annual, and invite a curator each year, a guest who's going to help me put the program together. So let's just say I invite Stacy Peralta off the top of my head and he comes along and he gets Craig Stesic or Glennie Friedman to do a, a photo show and he premieres his Jerry Lopez film at the at the little event and I interview Greg Greg who's Greg I interview Stacy one night and I interview Jerry the next night that would be pretty good right that's the kind of thing I'm aiming for um so let me know what you reckon all right big thanks for listening to this probably longest ever installment of housekeeping corner big thanks to andrew for being my guest and big thanks to you for checking out the show i'll be back next week see you then nice one (laughs) 